So we are jumping into this brand new message series, answering real questions. So every question that we're addressing across the next seven weeks or so has been asked by one of you, or in some cases, many of you. Uh, it turns out a lot of people have the same questions. Surprise, surprise. A lot of us are floundering through life trying to figure stuff out together. And so we'll be addressing those questions. Now, here, here's how we've done it. We've got the first five topics already picked out, already set, can't change. But we got two or maybe three weeks still open. So if you, like during, during the experience today, you have a question, you're like, you know what? I would actually love to hear this talked about. This has never been talked about on, in church I've been to before. I'd love to hear this. Drop that on your red card in that little section at the bottom. And when you drop it on the way out, we'll see all of those and we'll, we'll incorporate those. And if you really want it to be addressed, like get five of your friends around you, be like, hey, put this down. The person you don't know behind you, be like, yo, here's my question. Can you put it down too? And I swear, if we have five or six people ask something today, there's a good chance we'll talk about it before the end of this series. So this is your chance. You can make me talk about some weird stuff. You know that, right? You, the whole church could band together and have me talk about like why the Wizard of Oz is the truth. I don't like, you can make me talk about something weird. That was the first thing that came to mind. Why was it Wizard of Oz? I don't know, that's really weird. We could talk about Dr. Seuss, just figure it out. Whatever you wanna talk about, we can address that. But we're, we're addressing tough questions about God and faith. And today we're talking about what the, the most people asked about, like the largest number of questions submitted by people here and friends and everybody else, it was this one question. And it's a question that a lot of people have. In fact, they did a survey, a group called Barna Research did a survey not too long ago. And they asked if, if you could ask God one question and God had to answer, which is a nice thing to say, right? Because I feel like I ask God a lot of questions and don't get answers sometimes. If you ask God one question he had to answer, what would you ask him? Now this is gonna show you how surface level I am. I would honestly probably ask him what the best stock to buy for the next 10 years would be. And then I would make bank and I would be a billionaire and I could leave all of you losers, right? That's, that's what I would do. That's what I would, some of you are like, you don't even know me, but I know it. I would leave you, okay? I'd make a billion dollars. I would ask God something like that. Or I'd be like, God, when is Mississippi State gonna win their next bowl game? You know, like how many years do I have to wait until Mississippi State finally gets good in football? Like how long is it gonna be? Maybe ask him something like that. But the number one question that you guys asked for this and that people said they'd ask God is why is there pain and suffering in this world? That's the number one question. A lot of you ask questions around this. If God could stop evil, why doesn't he? God could snap his fingers and COVID was gone. Why doesn't he do that? Now, this is what's known as the problem of evil. And it is the single biggest question that confronts Christianity. It's the number one reason why a lot of people become atheists. Why, if God exists and he is all powerful, can do whatever he wants, and he is entirely good, does evil exist? If he's all powerful, he can make it quit. If he's good, he should want to make evil quit. Why doesn't he do that? I don't know if you've thought about that question like that before. That's the philosophical understanding, and that, that's kind of the philosophical level. This question is also asked in the Bible. It's a question that comes up. In fact, in, in the book of Habakkuk, he was a prophet, lived about 2,500 years ago, and this is what he wrote. He said, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. He was looking around at his world, falling apart. They were actually getting invaded by other countries. And he's saying, God, why don't you stand up for what's right? This question was asked by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question that has philosophical roots. It's got biblical roots. But for most of us, we're not hung up on the philosophy of it. We're hung up on what evil and suffering has done to us. So maybe your question is not, 
How can a good, all-powerful God allow evil to exist? Maybe it's, why was I abused as a kid? Why did that person I love so much leave me, just leave me behind entirely, treat me like trash? Maybe your question is, why did, why did my granddad or grandma, my aunt, uncle, my mom, dad die from cancer? God could have stopped that, right? Why is our world suffering from COVID? Maybe that's your question. Maybe this has been a hellish year and a half for you. And you're saying, God, couldn't you have just slightly changed the spike protein on COVID to where it wasn't as infectious and didn't spread around the world? Why not, God? We have personal questions. I remember when I was, I was in high school, and it was the first time I confronted what I would call this problem of evil. Uh, I was, you know, I'd, I'd seen bad stuff in the world. I'd experienced some bad stuff, but something about these three things happening together hit me in a different way. I had a guy that I knew who was younger than me, uh, to share some really tough stuff going on in his life, including a pornography addiction, some other things that has, were going on, and it really hit me hard. He was wrestling, he was struggling so much, and he was really at the end of his rope in a lot of ways. So that was going on. At the same time, I had a friend of mine who told me about how recently she had been taken advantage of and abused, and connected with that, she was self-mutilating, she was cutting herself and then at the same time, I didn't even know this family, but they lived across the street from me and my parents at the time. They had two young daughters, and we found out they were getting a divorce. And, it, you know, I, divorces are pretty common, and a lot of us have been affected directly by divorce. But something about that, and knowing these two girls would grow up without their parents being together, in connection with my friend, the guy, and then the, my friend, the girl, and all this stuff together just brought me to this pretty hard place. Like, God, why, why is life so bad? Why is life so rough? And a lot of us are asking that, that question. And maybe it's not the forefront. Maybe it's just kind of the back of your mind, how stuff has gone, how you've been treated, where you are right now, the frustration you felt. God, why? 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 And that's a good question to ask. In fact, we're going to ask it today. Now, here's the truth. Sometimes I think we think Christianity is the, only, uh, is the only religion or faith or worldview that has to answer these questions. The reality is every worldview, every faith has to make sense of suffering and pain in this world. Uh, so people do it different ways. Buddhists and New Age, New Age is kind of up and coming here in the U.S. right now, and it comes out of Buddhism. They, they say that suffering is what they call maya. Suffer, suffering is maya, which means it's an illusion. So what you got to do is you got to gain enlightenment and realize all your suffering is beneath you. I feel like a lot of guys in the military do this, right? It's like pain is weakness leaving the body kind of thing. Like it's that idea, but it spreads out to all of life to where you're like, hey, anything bad that happens, it's really not bad. And I think most of us look at that and think, no, it's pretty bad. Like, there's something in us that knows. We can't just act like this isn't real. It's real. Then you have Hinduism. Now, there's not a lot of Hindus in the U.S., but it's one of the biggest religions in the world, uh, in India especially. And what they say about suffering is you earned it. And in previous life, you did something. This is the concept of karma. And karma is this imper impersonal force that delivers justice. So in a past life, if you were a real jerk and you didn't put your grocery cart back up at Kroger and you left it out and some car hit it, you're going to pay for that in the next life. And so you better put your grocery cart up. They don't talk about grocery carts, but that was a me thing. You know, I'm just a little, I'm on that right now. Like, put your grocery carts up, people. You know what I'm saying? That was that amen line. Can, can somebody say amen today? I was, I, so, so they say, you do something in the past, it's going to come up in the present, and it's going to affect you. And so suffering's just, you earned it. So and actually, some, some people in Hinduism think you shouldn't help people who are suffering. They earned it. They need to go through this. And then you have atheism. And atheism doesn't really address the problem of suffering. They're just like, well, suffering exists. It is real. It's reality. And that's it. Oh, also, it proves God doesn't exist. But, but, but atheism doesn't really have any answers to suffering either. It's just actually part of the fabric of the universe, pain and suffering's built in, uh, and, that's, and that's that. 
So what's, what's interesting is that, that Christianity and Judaism and Islam, because they're the monotheistic religions, they believe in one all-powerful God, have to address this question of the problem of evil in a, in a kind of different way. Because again, we believe in a good God as Christians who is all-powerful, so why does evil exist? Uh, I've, I've found recently I have a lot of friends moving. Maybe it's a time of life. Maybe that I'm running them off. I'm not sure what it is. You ever, you ever wonder that? You're like, am I just that repulsive that people are moving out of the state for me? Like, I'm just running people off, but I have a lot of friends moving. So the, the other thing I'm realizing is that I think God has given me the spiritual gift of moving people. <laughs> because I'm doing it so much, I'm getting really good at it. It's like some people get the spiritual gift of prophecy or miracles, and I get the spiritual gift of moving boxes and sweating, because everyone moves in the summer. Have you noticed that? I've never had someone move in, like, October, like, 25th, when it's the perfect weather. It's, like, 57 degrees out, and you just are happy to be carrying boxes. It's, like, August 7th, 95 degrees. Die, fool. And that's my spiritual gift is that right there. And so I have the spiritual gift of moving people, and I've learned through moving dozens of people that there are two types of people in this world, not good and bad, not right and wrong, not Republican, Democrat. There's two types of people, and it's the people who are type A, and when you walk in, everything is in boxes and labeled and ready to move. Who are these kinds of people? I love you. I want to help you move. Invite me over. We'll do it for fun. We'll move you just because. Just move out of state sometime soon. I'll move you just for fun. All right, then there are the other people, and they're the people who think packing is for losers, and what they do instead is they throw everything in the pile on a floor, and then they put a sheet over it and kind of bundle it up, and they say, move it. Free labor, spiritual gift of moving. Who are you? Yes, I will not help you. I refuse to help you because you put everything in there. You put like your grandma Edna's sewing machine that you've never used in there with your two 70-pound dumbbells you can't even lift. You're not fooling anybody. And then you throw all your clothes, and for some reason you've held onto your clothes from when you were seven years old, you pack rats, and you put those in there, and you put a sheet around it, and you say, move it. That's what you tell me to do. And you know what? I can't, okay? And it's not because I'm not strong enough, it's because you just created this awkward bundle of stuff, and I'm trying to do this thing, hold it all together, go into the truck. I think sometimes when we deal with big problems like this, the problem of evil, it's this big bundle, and we're awkwardly trying to pick it up and jump through life with it. And we can't. It's such a big problem. You've, you've got to have a way to hold on to it. We've got to have a way to package it where we can have some handles so we can lift it well. So here's what I'm going to do for the next 20 minutes or so. I'm going to give you four handles, four ways of grabbing hold of this problem of evil so we can together lift it and make sense of it. Because the reality is evil exists, suffering exists, it's terrible, it's hard. God is good. He is all-powerful. How do we make sense of all this together? You guys ready for the four, four handles? All right, somebody say, I'm ready. ready. All right, here you go, four handles. Here's handle number one. Without the potential for suffering, love would not exist. Now, this right here is the philosophical answer. So if you're here today and you actually have a philosophical problem of does God exist because evil exists, I'm gonna give you the answer right here. You may not like it, but it's the answer. And before I keep going, this debate, by the way, has been settled in, in the academic world of philosophy. The academic world of philosophy, not necessarily Christians, just in the academic world, it has been established and widely accepted that God can exist based on this kind of argument. So a lot of us think that like, oh, athe atheists have this argument that Christians can't answer. Not at all. It's been answered. You just don't know it yet. It's been fully answered. And here, here's, here's where it comes down to. God decided when he created the world, he was going to create the best possible world. Aren't you glad God did that? He didn't think, let me just torture these people. But, you know, he created the best possible world. In the best possible world, love has to exist. 
We understand this. God is love. We, we understand that the greatest parts of life are about loving relationships. So love must exist. Now here is the key. For real love to exist, real choice must exist. If real choice exists, in other words, like, I can't force you to love me and it really be love. I can't create a robot who says, I love you every day and it really be love because it's all programmed, it's forced. Real love has to be chosen. So for love to exist, real choice must exist. If real choice exists, then the potential for wrong choices, evil choices, painful choices also exists. So if God's going to create a world in which love exists, which is the best possible of all kinds of worlds, then the potential for evil is built in. To say, well, couldn't God create a world where love exists and evil, evil couldn't exist? That would be like saying, couldn't God create a round square? It's impossible. Couldn't God create a colorless color? God, God's not, like, God, God operates within logic, right? It's not saying he's limited. He's just like, he can't do something that doesn't make sense. Um, and that's kind of shocking. Some of you are like, can't God do everything? No, God, God operates within what it can actually exist. And so you can't have real love without real choice. And we know, you see in Genesis chapter three, third chapter of the Bible, everything started off good. God created everything is good and very good. And then sin enters the world. And sin has created brokenness and evil and pain. And that's the world we live in. But it's a world that must exist, that it must exist if we have love. I mean, imagine if you were a God. Anyone ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? Where Jim Carrey, of all people, becomes God? You know, he can do whatever. It's like all the problems that come. Like, imagine trying to create a world where you got rid of evil, but you didn't get rid of love. You just can't, you can't do it. The potential for evil always exists, always exists when love does. Now, that's the philosophical answer, but the reality is a lot of us wrestle not with the philosophical question. We wrestle with what about the reality of living within this broken world? How do we actually handle it? How do we live within it? How do we do that? So that's why I want to give you handle number two. So handle number one is without the potential for suffering, love wouldn't exist. Here's handle number two. In a broken world, suffering can produce goodness. Yeah, hold up. Suffering produces goodness. Think about your life. Some of the best parts of who you are came out of some of the hardest times you experienced. Some of the best things you've learned have come out of some of the toughest lessons in life. Now, we live in a broken world, and so God didn't choose you to go through this, but God uses these things to bring about goodness in your life. It says this about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. This is one of the most mind-blowing verses in the Bible. It says, Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. God in the flesh learned obedience through suffering. If Jesus did, let me tell you something, you are not better than Jesus. Newsflash, if he learned obedience, if he grew, if he gained from going through suffering, you will too. Again, God is not the cause of suffering, but he uses suffering to bring about goodness in your life. Now, if you've ever had a parent, I think most of us have. Anybody here not have a parent? Most of us had parents. You know, sometimes parents do things to you that are good for you, but not kind to you. I was a recipient of many of these. It came on the end of a paddle, swung by my dad, who was an all-American athlete in college and never lost any muscle, I don't think. That man could swing a paddle. And I experienced discipline. I experienced things that weren't pleasant, but they were good for me, right? We, we understand this. Um, I, recently, I went to the dentist. Now, I actually like the dentist. Going to the dentist to me is an enjoyable experience. Anybody with me on that? I just like the dentist. I like having teeth. Dentist equals having, keeping my teeth. That's positive, except for this time, because he was actually pulling a tooth. And it wasn't just any tooth. It was the back right molar, which incidentally I found is my favorite tooth. 
and he, he goes in to pull it out, and it's like, this is the tooth in, in all the, those action movies when someone gets tortured, and you know, the guy, like, the, he's always some Russian guy with an accent, I can't do a Russian accent or I would, but he gets those pincher things, and he reaches back in and grabs that back molar, and he does a little uh, twist twist, and a pull pull, and a, ah, you know, the guy screams and rips it out. That's the tooth he was taking out of me. So I lay down, he deadened it a little bit, a little bit, okay, let's just be clear. There were still things felt deep within my soul. Somehow that was connected deep within me, my guts. I just felt it. And he's ripping out, and you hear the grinding and the ripping, and just like, you just, you feel it. You just, you, you do feel it. Like, you can't, the pain's not there. I love, some of you are so freaked out by this. I won't even tell you what it looked like when it came out. But he rips this thing out. Now, was that like a, a kind thing to do, a gentle thing to do? No. Was it good? It was necessary. It was an infected tooth. I won't tell you what it looked like when it came out. It's disgusting, right? But he had to do that. It was good for me. So we understand at this human level, sometimes things happen that are painful and not fun, but they are good. But when it gets to the level of God, we forget this. But the truth is that God uses our suffering to produce goodness in our lives. It says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, uh, this, this, powerful, this powerful verse, it says, not only, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, what starts with suffering produces endurance and then character, and then we end up at a place of hope because of the suffering. The suffering leads us to hope. And so as we're facing suffering in our lives and the world around us, we can know as Christians that God is working through it. He didn't cause the brokenness. He didn't cause the suffering, but he's intimately involved in using it for our good. All right, here's handle number three. So handle number one is without suffering, we could not have love. Suffering is necessary for us to have love. The second thing is that suffering can produce goodness. And the third thing is that suffering points to the goodness of God. You're saying, wait, we started off today saying that suffering calls into question the existence of God. But let me show you how suffering points to the existence of God. And I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let someone else do it named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a great Christian writer and, and philosopher, thinker. And this is what he had to say about this. He says, and by the way, he was in, this is important context to know. He was an atheist uh, before he became a Christian. He d- denied the existence of God. And here's what he says. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, he doesn't believe that there is a higher power, but he's still saying there's something in me that says that's wrong. That's unjust. Why would he say that's unjust? He goes on and he says this. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. What he's saying here is, if the world is truly unjust, doesn't just bother you, but it's truly unjust, why are you saying that? It's because there is some standard that says there's right and wrong, there's just and unjust. This is what's known as the moral argument for God. And it's one of, I think, the strongest arguments for God's existence. It's also one of the strongest arguments, I think, for God's goodness. We know that something evil happens and suffering happens. We know that's not good. Why do we know that's not good? Because we have a standard for goodness. I was watching the gymnastics at the Olympics recently. Do I ever start a story and you don't know where I'm going with it? Sometimes. 
So most of the time, you know, as long as you don't know where I'm going at the end of it, right? That's the problem. Uh, in the gymnastics, I, I love watching gymnastics, and mainly ladies' gymnastics in, in the Olympics, because the U.S. ladies kick butt. And I'm all about, like, the Olympics for me are national pride, really. It's just like, let, can we dominate some other countries right now? And the U.S. ladies are so good. And when I'm watching it, I get really particular because I think I'm a better judge than the actual judges who spend their life doing this. And so I'm ticked off because you didn't give Simone, you know, her quarter point she deserved. And when I'm watching it, like, it's interesting sometimes. These ladies will do something, especially in the floor routine. If, if any of you did that in front of me right now, I would be in awe. I would, just be, I would just be clapping and just like, wow, that's the most. Even if you just did a basic, like, backflip right now. Probably someone here can do a backflip. I think it's the coolest thing. Like, just seeing you do a backflip. And then these ladies, I can't even count how many times they're spinning and flipping. And they'll do that. Um, and it's just like, that's phenomenal. But then, like, one person will only do, like, a double backflip. And I'm like, oh, that's all you got, lady? That's all you got, five foot one Kenyan? Like, that's all you can do, lady from Albania? Like, Albania, come on, you should have more than that. It's like, I, but I had, this, I had this high standard for them because I know this standard exists because I know Simone Biles exists, right? I know this standard exists of what could be. And so I know what it could be. And so I see you doing this. I'm like, yo, you trash. Like, come on. That's only like a, it's not, it's, you're no good at all. Like, what are you even, why are you even out here, Albania? What are you doing? And so that's, I have that because I have the standard. In the same way, we can look around at our world and we know, we know, every single one of us knows when someone does something to us that's wrong, we know it's wrong. It's unjust. We recognize it. Why do we recognize it? If God doesn't exist, there's no reason to say it. It's like C.S. Lewis says, it's just my own personal opinion. If you do something wrong to me and I don't like it, hey, that's just your opinion. But if we recognize that there is some standard in this world, some objective standard for right and wrong, and we know as Christians that's God, then it points to the existence. So suffering, in a weird way, points to the existence of God. Suffering actually leads us to this place where we recognize that God is, God exists, and God is different than the world we see around us. So those are three handles. Honestly, a Muslim teacher could stand up here or a Jewish teacher could stand up here and make a pretty similar case to what I've made to this point about the problem of evil. He'd give you those three handles. But no other faith, no other religion can give you this fourth handle. And the fourth handle is that Jesus embraced our suffering. He didn't have to. He chose to. In a world in which love can exist, free choice exists. And Jesus chose to embrace the suffering that we have created through our sin. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, talking about Jesus. It's actually a prophecy about him. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus chose to take on himself the suffering of our world, the suffering that we had created. And he chose to do this because of love. This, this is such a mind-blowing idea to me, that as we face suffering, that God chose to face the same kind of suffering in Jesus. It, we, we understand in our world we're going to be abused, but you know Jesus chose abuse for our sakes. We know that we're, that we're going to be broken. Do you, do you know Jesus chose brokenness for our sakes? We know that we're going to have people revile us and mistreat us and shout stuff at us at times. Jesus chose that for us. We know that we're going to die because of the brokenness of this world, and Jesus chose that for us. There's a doctor named Richard Seltzer. He writes this book, and it's about different experiences he's had as a doctor across his life. 
And one of these experiences just captures my imagination. He writes about a young woman laying on a bed. He's just done an operation on her. There's a tumor in her cheek. And in order to remove it, he had to go in and he cut a nerve. It was unavoidable. He cut a nerve in her cheek. He removed the tumor. She was better. Except because he cut that nerve, she lost control of this side of her mouth. So perpetually her face was disfigured. It was, it was drooping. It was, she was unable to hold that side of her mouth up. And he says he's standing there looking at the woman laying on the bed, her husband standing right across the bed. And she looks up at Richard and says, Will my mouth always be like this? He says, yes, I'm afraid so. And then the husband looks down at the woman on the bed and he says, you know, I kind of like it. It's kind of cute. And Richard says, in this moment, it was a divine moment, the husband leaned down and he disfigured his mouth to match hers and gave her a kiss just to show her that their kiss still worked. Jesus, in coming into our broken, suffering world, disfigured himself, embraced suffering, chose that so that he could show us the love of God still works. When you have gone through abuse, you look at your past and you have suffered and people have harmed you and you have experienced death, know this, that Jesus is right there with you. He chose that. He embraced suffering for us. And he was broken, entered the brokenness of our world so we could someday be made whole for eternity with him. That's the hope we have. And so as Christians, we can embrace this problem of suffering. Knowing it's real, it's painful, it's wrong, it's not how God intended, but it's what we have chosen through sin. But we can know that Jesus embraced that suffering to make a way for us. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of us will say this too, my God, why have you let me be hurt like this? My God, why have you let COVID wreak havoc on our world like this? My God, why did you allow that person to die in my life? My God, my God, why? But those were not the final words on the cross. Jesus' final words is a quotation from Psalm 31. And this is what it says in Psalm 31, verses three through five. It says here, since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. These are the final words Jesus said coming up. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, I'm asking why. I don't understand. It's painful, the suffering's here, but into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it said Jesus breathed his last. And as he breathed that sigh, he didn't have the breath to even say the final words of this verse, but they are there, they're true. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. And his final breath, he had been asking why, but in his final breath, he committed his life to a God who would deliver him, he knew, and who was faithful. And in the same way, we can look at the problem of sin and suffering, and we can say it's not that it's not bad, it's bad, but we can see it and say this, Father, into your hands I commit my life. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't control it. It's going to be bad. I'm going to hate it. But Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and you will deliver me, and you will be faithful to me. I'm a realist in life. I know that right here, right now, there are people who are frustrated with God. The frustration can, can run a whole spectrum of things. Why am I suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there evil in this world? Maybe it's the philosophical issue, but maybe it's something a lot deeper. Maybe it's the fact you lost someone you loved recently and you're wondering, why God? Why? 
Maybe it's the fact that something happened in your past and it has warped your life going forward. And it has made you feel like you don't matter. And it's just broken you. And you're, you're still living in the brokenness of what was done to you. And you say, why, God? It could be as simple as the last 18 months were hell for you and you haven't recovered and your family hasn't recovered and, and COVID has just destroyed everything you cared about. And you're saying, why, God? Why? We have two options, really, when we come to this point. We can just say, why, God? We can shake our fist and be done. Or we can say, I don't believe in you, God, but there's too much evidence for me to say I don't believe in God. Uh, the other option we have is this. We can simply say, Father, I don't understand, but I'm choosing love, and I'm choosing your love. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I've got nowhere else to go. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's the choice in front of us today. Whatever's happened in your past or is in your present or you're afraid will be in your future, are you able to say, I've got a refuge, I've got a fortress. He's my God. And into his hands I commit my spirit. I want to give us an opportunity today for those of us who are here and we're hurting and we're frustrated and, and we're just angry about whatever. And maybe it's not anger, maybe it's just disappointment. You're disappointed about how your life has ended up and where you're at right now. I want to give us a chance to go to God with that. So let's bow in prayer together today.